Be good. Hello there, folks. Welcome to some strange times here in the world. Uh, This is Andrew, and my wife Tiffany and our little dog Pele are not with me at the moment. We are in uh, different parts of the same state, which is currently uh, on fire. We're in California, and uh, wow, there's just a whole shitload of the state that is burning to the ground at the moment, and it's, um, it's frightening and very disheartening and just deeply, deeply saddening to see uh, the dozens of people who've lost their lives and the many thousands more who've lost their homes and everything that they they hold dear um, and that keeps them warm and dry. Um, yeah, our hearts just cannot go out enough to these people uh, that are they're so desperately suffering and if there's any way that we can help feel free to reach out to us at mtp.dog and let us know uh, if you have something that you think we can help with we'd love to and if you're out there and you got some money and you're wondering what kind thing you could do with it this week consider donating to any one of the many charities who are going to be helping uh, and aid groups are going to be helping with the ongoing relief effort which um I can say from uh, having experienced it's this in the Sonoma fires last year, uh, immigrant communities really, really get fucked in these in these disasters because they're already uh, marginalized and afraid to come forward for help, which is a double terrible tragedy. So, um, you know, maybe maybe keep that in mind. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I want to get. Uh, I really want to give you today's guest. Um, I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but I just wanted to make the the point that it doesn't matter when you're listening to this. You could be uh, 20 years from the date of this recording, um, the son of some weirdo who used to listen to podcasts, and you've just found this randomly in an iTunes library in the year 2030. Um, you can still you this guy this gal, go donate to a relief fund somewhere because I guarantee you the fires in California are probably still happening. Um, Yeah, please help. All right, that's enough of that. Uh, I want to tell you about our guests because I really genuinely thought and think this is a special human being, Johnny Keenan. Uh, We met him in Paonia. Paonia, California, and Johnny is so many different things, but uh, he's a dad, a very good dad. He's uh, just a kind guy who thinks deeply about the the world and what's going on and his place in it. And I got to tell you, I I left a lot on the table with uh, with Johnny. He's done so much in his life, and I feel like we just didn't even put a tiny scratch in the in the surface uh, of, uh, of his tale, but I got something for you, and I enjoyed the conversation quite a lot, and I, I think you will too. So, yeah. I'm going to shut up now because I feel like I've been rambling, but uh, I hope you're well out there. I hope um, you're not um, suffering from any major losses, 
And I hope you're in a position to help others because there are plenty others who need your help. All right, uh, Johnny Keenan coming up. Share and enjoy. Until next time, adios. All right, thank you, Johnny. Thank you. We're here in your bus, the magical bus. Yeah. Has this got a name? Not particularly. No. Not particularly a name. <laughs> it has many names, is that? Yeah, it's the bus. It's the bus? Yeah, I like your bus. The bus we don't speak of. Here we are. We're on the bus uh, in your house in Paonia. Uh, you've been here for how long? Um, well, I've been in, living in the area, uh, Hodgkiss and Paonia, for about 16 years now. Yeah. So I really want to start way back in the beginning. You're from Amherst, Massachusetts? I, I am. Um, I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and uh, grew up primarily in Amherst, Massachusetts. Yeah. And you're mid-50s at this I point? I am. Yeah. So tell me about... Amazingly enough. <laughs> tell me about Amherst. Well, Amherst is a... I remember it as a very special place. Uh, it was very... Um, forward-thinking, uh, new age, I guess, is one way you'd call it. Um, really incredible place to grow up. I can imagine. A lot of exposure to education and different ways of looking at life. And, you know, it was uh, growing up there was during the Vietnam War, and we also had the largest Air Force base in the country at the time, just over the hill from us, Westover Air Force Base. Oh. And the neighborhood I grew up in was pretty much a mix of college professors and Air Force pilots. And yeah. so it was a it was a pretty interesting place to be at that time. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, a lot of really well-educated people. Yeah. And there's still kind of a working class thing going on there. What, what was the main sort of uh, industry the main industry was definitely education. That was um, the industry. Yeah, and all the things involved around it. Um, you know, we had the University of Massachusetts, Amherst College. Hampshire College was just starting when I was a kid. It used to be Old Man Stiles Farm. Where yeah. I got in some good trouble tipping over some of his cows one night. And uh, Did you get a back full of salt shot? Uh, my buddy, uh, yeah, my buddy did. He got oh. a full... 12-gauge round oh, of the back with salt God, salt rock. So. I cannot imagine what that feels like. Um, not good. Not nice. <laughs> Jesus. But uh, now it's Hampshire College, which uh, is an entity all unto itself, yeah. and a real special place. Um, but, yeah, mostly, you know, it was an old New England community. Amherst has got a lot of history going back to the, before the founding of our country. Yeah. Um, you know, it's first one of the first places to have a school mm -hmm. in the United States and a big farming community uh, surrounded by orchards and farming communities. So um, a pretty diverse group of people, really. Yeah. And times were slower and there was less people. So right. it was um, the blend was a little different. Last time I was back there a few years ago, it didn't feel the same. It yeah. felt more like a city, you know, a lot more people, a yeah. lot more problems. Yeah, it's happening everywhere, right? Yeah. Everywhere yeah. you go. I mean, we're, we're looking at your town thinking, boy, it should be nice to move here. 
Yeah. I, I'm certain the last thing anybody here wants to see is like some California plates rolling in and not leaving. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it's changing. This town has been a coal mining community for a long time and an agricultural community. And um, it's historically been one of the poorest places in Colorado. Really? We're on, we're on the western slope, so we're geographically a long ways away from stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, the nearest stoplights 30 miles away you know and so um people are here are incredible incredible group of people that have settled this valley over the years and the people that are here now there's definitely um a newer wave of of people moving here from other places trying to trying to get away from the hustle and bustle of yeah. what they're dealing with uh, on the front range in california and mm-hmm. all over the place and uh, then freaks you got straight up freaks yeah moving. <laughs> and we got plenty of freaks there's yeah. at least a freak per corner yeah it depends on what time of day. You know, people don't usually stay up past about 9.30, so we yeah. have to get out there early to find the good ones. <laughs> so speaking of finding the good ones, what made you leave Amherst? Well, um, a lot of things. Uh, I've, always, I've always tried to uh, experience as much as I can in life, and um, it was a good time. I left pretty young. The first time I came to Colorado was I was uh, probably 15, mm-hmm. and I came out here uh, with an opportunity to work in a bakery. Um, now you left you left home really young. I did. I left uh, just bef- just after my 13th birthday, wow. something like that. Happy birthday! You're free. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I went up to my dad, and my mom there on the kitchen table, and I can remember it clear as day. I I said uh, I think I want to move out and and uh my dad asked me if i had a place to stay and i said yeah and uh asked me if i had a job and i said yeah and he said well good luck and you know call us if you need something wow 13 and so i i moved in with uh the person who taught me how to do pottery jim logan really yeah you're still doing pottery i do yeah not as much as i probably should but uh um, is Jim Logan a name I should know? Um, it is. It's a person you should meet. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. He's he's uh, brought a lot of people, helped a lot of people. You know, um, he's just a teacher. He was a teacher in Amherst for twenty some odd years, mm-hmm. and a phenomenal potter. Just unbelievable potter. Now I believe he's making wooden spoons. Really? Yeah. That's a very specific thing to be yeah, making. Yeah. I don't make forks. I'm not making spatulas. <laughs> make, oh, no. He makes forks and spatulas and whatnot. But I think his spoons are his... <laughs> That's his thing. Spoons is what got him hooked. That's great. But uh, I, I, I don't speak with him very often. I think mm-hmm. I talked to him about 10 years ago, and he seemed to be doing good. He retired from being a teacher. But huh. he's definitely produced a lot of artistic... Uh, you know, promoted a lot of artistic energy in the kids that came through his school you know through his class yeah and i had actually met him when i was 13 i uh was basically looking for a warm place to hang out and i realized that they were having um continuing ed classes at the junior high at night doing pottery and woodworking whatever so I wandered over there thinking, well, you know, stay stay warm for a couple more hours before I had to crawl in my cardboard box. And uh, uh, 
just kind of fell in love with it and it became a really it's a very zen meditative thing to do and i was uh you know had my backpack full of stuff to try to uh work out and pottery just really helped with that yeah and jim has helped help with that a lot too yeah that's good to have a a real life mentor yeah who's genuinely interested in what you're doing and how you're doing it and he taught me what uh what you know having a mentor sometimes it's it's more about finding the mentor yeah because everybody can be a mentor sure you know and and being comfortable with allowing someone to be your mentor is is kind of what jim taught me yeah it's a lot of getting out of your own way yeah and finding a mentor yeah 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 i like that Left at 13, you hung around Amherst for a while, and uh, it sounds like you picked up a couple of skills, pottery and woodworking. Did you uh-huh. learn any of that at that yeah, place? Yeah, I, uh, I have been working ever since I was very young. Yeah. So uh, I have uh, many brothers, and my brother David was um, one of these guys that at 14 had a company and was wheeling and dealing and had jobs and so i would i would wake up specifically before him so that he would hopefully ask me to come to work with him and so when i was eight nine years old i would go to construction sites and find work carry bricks yeah you know uh, move wheelbarrows do whatever i could just to just to kind of be involved i really i've always wanted to learn I, I still want to learn whatever it is I can learn that I haven't learned yet, and yeah. and uh, feeling like I'm doing something, producing something, has always been sort of a driving thing for me. So yeah, I would wake up early, and the days that David would ask me to go to work with him, I was totally psyched, and the other days I'd just sit and watch Bugs Bunny for another hour and <laughs> go off and do something, start wandering. Yeah, so I've learned a lot of skills. I I, I started real young and i learned mm-hmm. a lot of things you know um i used to uh sp- spend a lot of time on the job site and one one contractor whether it's the painter or the mason or the carpenter would see that i was actively working and engaged and learning what i was trying to do and they would ask me to come help them so eventually i i made the rounds you know i started with the mason and then the painter asked me to help him and he taught me how to mix paint and color yeah. and um, you know, standard techniques and stuff like that. And then the carpenter would hire, you know, ask me to sharpen and set his point, his saws, and I'd do that. And one summer I spent the whole summer pointing and setting saws, wow. thousands of teeth, you know. And um, Talk about a Zen meditative sort of practice. I, yeah, of course I didn't know that's what I was doing at yeah. the time. But I think it definitely, uh, definitely added to where i went from there you know? yeah just understanding that that work is not 
necessarily the outcome of what it is you're doing, but it's the process of what you're doing. Yeah. So if you got to sharpen your saw 40 times to get something done. That's the process. That's the process. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, uh, there's so much with you that I want to talk about. Your job history's on the list for sure. But before you, we leave Amherst, I know you got exposed. And earlier you said to me you've had not a unique life, but a serendipitous life. And that you've kind of been ex- in the right places at the right time and exposed to kind of all the right and or wrong people <laughs> at the right and or wrong times. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you in just our brief conversations, you've mentioned having made breakfast for the Dalai Lama, being exposed to, uh, you know, uh, Timothy Leary and Albert. I mean, did, did you know Albert or Ram Dass or any of those yeah, guys? Yeah, I knew him as Richard Albert. Yeah. Um, my my friends, the Pishnari family, were taking care of his ashram, mm-hmm. and uh, I was young, and there was the whole, you know, Amherst being a college town had a lot of different things going on, you know. Some people were into football, some people were into LSD, yeah. and some people were into spiritual enlightenment, and some people were into being in the Air Force, you know, and so there was all these different influences. And I definitely um, had the ability to bounce from one group of people to the other. And um, uh, part of my childhood I spent with a lot of groovy, what we would call hippie families. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't want it to sound negative, but I didn't really enjoy spending time at my home. My home was very dysfunctional. I come from, um, I always say, eight boys. There's really been six of us um, most of my life. And it was, the war was going on, and my older brothers were, like, worried about going off to war, and friends were, you know, the perp- the yellow ribbons were going up. And so it was a pretty hectic time growing up. And I had a bunch of friends who came from hippie families, and um, that was uh, a different enough for me to be really interested in it, mm. you know, and to be attracted to it because it was so different than the white, like regimented lifestyle yeah. of normal picket fence type childhood you know and so luckily being in Amherst we had that and yeah we had you know Tenzing Thurman was uh, Uma Thurman's father was part of Alpert and Leary and this other guy Ephraim Robbins Um, it was just this community of people that were that were spiritual and enlightened and yeah there was other aspects of it that were part of that whole dance but yeah um, I was lucky enough to be exposed to that, you yeah. know, at a at a young age. And I didn't like uh, we were talking about our friends, our similarities between um, me and Charisse. <laughs> and uh, I too was Rolf's when I was very young. When I really? was when I was twelve years old, I was Rolf by eye to Rolf. Really? Yeah. How bad did that hurt? Worse than the buckshot of salt? <laughs> no, to the it was better than the stuff I was trying to get Rolfed out. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, That's I had a lot of, that was the reason I went there was I had this incredible guidance counselor that knew things weren't, weren't 
working right for me mm. and tried really hard to find some sort of therapy that was going to work to help me with the things that I was going through in life. And that was, she was friends. They were friends. Wow. She just happened to be in town and there you go, you know? Wow. So, so who, was, did someone beseech on, on, like on your behalf, like, hey, will you give this kid a treatment? Yeah, Jenny, or? Jenny Siddle, she was my guidance counselor. And she knew Seventh Ida. grade, she didn't, she, she didn't even have. She knew Ida. She was. Oh, they were, so you were personal friends. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I was thinking that one of uh, Albert's. She was one of Albert's friends, but no, no she was no, your no. guidance counselor's buddy. Yeah, no, she was. Shit. She was a friend of Ida Rolf. Wow, that's so a pretty was, hip guidance counselor. She was very hip. Yeah, very very hip. She also sent me to this this thing. I'm still not sure what they were testing for, but uh, when I was young, they used to send me to uh, another lady that was somehow associated with universities or whatever that was doing these tests of, you know, can you put the square in the round peg and yeah. all that stuff. And I didn't really realize what it was. All I knew is they were giving me five bucks and that's a lot of bazooka bubblegum back that's in those days. Man. <laughs> it's like 500 pieces of bubblegum. Yeah. So... But there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on in my hometown. Yeah. I actually went to one of the first, I think it was the first publicly funded Montessori school. Really? In Amherst, Massachusetts. It's called Crocker Farm. Wow. And we had three rooms separated by two walls. And part of the time they would shut the walls and we would do our concentrated studies. And then the rest of the time they would open the walls up and we'd all hang out with different grades and yeah. different kids. And I didn't realize it at the time, but after having sent my kids to Montessori, I was like, holy cow, I went to Montessori school. <laughs> I didn't even know it. You know, I mean, it just, but it, it makes sense now when yeah. I think about the way that I was taught to research and taught mm -hmm. to engage and taught to, you know, when, when I knew you wanted to sit down and talk with me, I, one thing keeps coming up with it, which is another one of my mentors in life, another really special person in my life, was a, a man named Michael Bardsley, who for a while he was like the mayor of Northampton, but he was a guidance counselor. I spent a lot of time with my guidance counselor. Sounds like it, man. A lot of time. And uh, so... The first thing Michael Bardsley did for me, and it has been the major part of my life, is he gave me a book by Studs Terkel, which you need to write this yeah, one Studs down. Yeah, Studs Terkel. Because I know you've got a list. We've got books. a list. Yes, we do. So the book is called Working. Okay. And it's very similar to what you're doing. Hmm. Studs Terkel went around and talked to people about what they do for work yeah. and what work means to them. And that book changed my life. Really? Uh, just opened up. I was just like, I don't need to be an accountant. I don't need to be a this or a that. I can be all of that. Yeah. I, can, I can do this for a bit and that for a bit and understand how this relates to that. And and so I got to thank Michael Bardsley, mm -hmm. Northampton, Massachusetts. Nicely done, Michael. Yeah, because uh, it led me into a really incredible experience, very serendipitous. Yeah. Indeed. I mean, you've... you've I think we talked about it the other day. You've had upwards of twenty different jobs. Yeah, if um, not if not more. I mean, I was yeah. I was continually thinking about that after yeah. we talked because I, more would pop up into my head. I it's, was like, oh yeah, then there was. It's got to be more. The... I, I'm I'm rounded <laughs> about forty, so yeah. I know you've got more than I do. Yeah, but let's. I mean, of the carpentry and building has been and and you know art 
different types of art have been the primary focus of my career. Um, yeah. I've worked a lot in kitchens, done mm-hmm. a lot of food. Mm-hmm. But that, to me, is a very artistically based yeah. thing. Well, know, work and jobs. You know, there is a distinction between work and a job. You know, yeah. It, it could be just semantics, but there is something there. There's, a, there's definitely a difference. But you, uh, So from Amherst, you were there for a while, even after you left home. You stuck around the area. And it sounds like you kind of cultivated your uh, ability to tap into your own curiosity and answer questions. Which is, I think, one of the most valuable things you could possibly do yeah. you know, is to cultivate your own curiosity and figure out a way to, to to wedge or cudgel that in between what you want to know and any kind of answer you're going to end up with. But so you left Amherst when? How old do you think you were when you? Took well, off? the first time I split, um, I came out here to Colorado to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 15, I believe. And did, you, did you hitch, or did you just have a friend coming uh, out here? Or how'd you get out here? I can't remember how. I might have drove. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I had a tendency to do that. Yeah. Uh, no, I can't remember exactly how I got out here, but I had a job offer to work as a patissier chef mm-hmm. in a bakery that my brother Joey was working in as a ba- as a bread sh- bread baker. Yeah. And so I had been living in Boston, working with this incredible lady who had been teaching me how to do. Um, pastry work and cake and decorating and all kinds of different stuff basically teaching me how to work 18 hours in a bakery yeah sounds like it yeah breaking breaking open like you know 50 cases of eggs that are you know 20 dozen in a case that type of thing and you just need the whites yeah separating oh my god and you're in a cooler yeah and then you got you got to deal with the butter after that which is like 400 pounds of butter But so I had this opportunity to come out here and work with this really incredible French pastry chef who had just happened to be working in in this bakery in in, uh, Boulder, which was majorly French people. Mm -hmm. There was three or four Americans that were sort of partners in owning it. It was a very large volume bakery. We we served Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, the Western Slope. I mean, wow. we made thousands and production thousands. Production yeah, and yeah, production, yeah. Major production. But uh, so my brother was working there, and I said, sure, you know, why not? Come on out. And I ended up, I actually, I, I became emancipated when I was um, 14. Mm-hmm. So I ended up having to write a letter to my to the school on my behalf. <laughs> like, you know, please excuse Johnny. He won't be back for the first two months of school. Yeah. You know, sign Johnny. And uh, so uh, <laughs> they didn't like that much at the, at the school. But... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like if... If you can properly draft that letter in a convincing way, that should be a diploma. Well, that's why I got emancipated. They were giving me a hard time because they caught me living in the next town over. I was I was living in a restaurant and cooking and cooking and and uh, hustling. Hus- well, I was I was literally trying to find a place to sleep. So the guy that owned the restaurant, who was uh, one of my brother's friends growing up was this fancy chef from new york now so he came back to hometown built a restaurant well i worked out a deal where if i cooked breakfast and made bread that he'd give me a place to crash so it was kind of like a you know but it was in the next town over and somebody found out that i was 
in the next town over, living in the next town over, and the school tried to charge me money oh, to go to school because oh, because you were busing. I, I should have been going to the school in oh. the next town over. You know, Jeez. so that's how I kind of figured out that if I got emancipated, then I could like I could just get in a post office box in the town and mm-hmm. still live wherever I wanted. And, yeah, but wow. so. There was other reasons, but that was why I did that. And so after I got emancipated, there wasn't. They couldn't call my parents. There was like, you know, if they needed to have, if they had a problem, they had to deal with me directly. And pretty much they did. I remember they gave me my diploma before the end of the year, and they said, oh, "We're going to give you this now if you just don't come back." Because I w- I was on work study from seventh grade until I graduated, so I only wow. was in school for two or three hours a day. Wow. And I was working the rest of the time because yeah. I had to, you know, keep a roof over my head or whatever. Um, but I graduated, you know, I graduated. I got a, I got a diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> I got me some certificates. <laughs> so what else? Did you go to higher education at all? Did you? Go I to, did. I went yeah. to Marlboro College when I was 21 years old. Um, I showed up there with a box of pottery. Uh, about a week after school started. Where's Marlboro? Marlboro's in Vermont. Okay. It's a liberal arts school yeah. uh, founded by a bunch of World War II vets. Wow. That um, Mostly a music orientation and, and uh, literature. Mm. A lot of writers. A lot of, uh, it's only 150 kids when I was there. Wow. Real small school. That's interesting. Did you get a di- diplomat from there no, too? No, yeah. didn't get no diplomat from that one. <laughs> no, I didn't. That's <clears throat> cool. I'm sitting on this. I did not. Uh, didn't last long in college. I, you know, like I said, I started when I was 21, and um, I got immediately got a job as the work, the work, you know, fixing the sheetrock and stuff like that to kind of yeah. pay. I got a full scholarship, but I still needed some money and stuff. Yeah. So, but uh, it sitting still wasn't my thing, and you know, I yeah. like Nietzsche and everything, but I, I'm not the kind of guy that can sit down and read it and then just spend a lot of time thinking about it yeah i'm gonna move on to the next thing you know <laughs> like how can i apply nietzsche to putting these two boards together so right. i can get the 10 bucks that they're gonna pay me for fixing the broken boards yeah. you know yeah so you but i did I, I did go to college for a short period of time and yeah. it was it was uh it was a good experience for sure mm-hmm. and then after that i moved back out here um i, I was just ready to get off the east coast yeah, um, I like I, I like to have a, a little like I was telling you earlier. I'm sort of um, hyper aware of auric energies, and and when I get around a lot of people, it's difficult sometimes. So yeah, when you're on the East Coast, you can be in the woods, and there's still five million people twenty feet away from you. You just don't see them, right. you know. Yeah, and out here we got some room. I can you I can, can see somebody coming. Yeah, yeah, it's usually a cow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Their their karmic balance, whatever they're doing to your energy field, is pretty mellow. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. seem like a fairly mellow guy. I mean, you're you're definitely moving. You're doing stuff. You're working hard, but you got a mellow countenance. That, Thanks. That's um, you didn't pick that up in the East Coast. 
No, it took a lot of years to get rid of my East Coast thing. Yeah, I I want to say like I'm from the South, so I can't really talk shit about any other geographical (laughs) region of the country because the South. But well, uh, the South is a very very slow. Yeah, they speak slow, they work slow, they move slow, they Mm -hmm. do things, they take their time, you know, and that's. The East Coast is definitely the different of that. Yeah. It is like, get out of my way, you know, competitive. And when I first came out here, I was really blown away by the fact that there was the whole sense of competition was totally different. It was, mm-hmm. it wasn't, can you compete? It was, can you survive? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, big there's difference. big difference there. Like, you know, uh, growing up on the east coast it's it's everything's competitive Mm -hmm. there's i mean driving you know school who's the bigger asshole that's who gets to go next yeah yeah who can push their way to the top you know i I moved to uh to new york when i was 19 uh from memphis tennessee and drove people out of their fucking minds (laughs) i was a driver i was a delivery driver part of the time and it just drove people insane to be near me in traffic just honking and just even when I would walk in a throng of people, I just you know meandering, moseying. Right, that's not cool no. in New York to be moseying, no, no. trying people. to say hi to people. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. eye contact. Yeah. What, what are you looking at? Where are you from? Yeah, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry. So you've you've mellowed out out here uh, on the yeah, side of the Rockies. A lot of things have a lot of things have uh, allowed me to have that countenance that you described. Yeah. trying to observe and enjoy what I see and I feel around me, you know? Yeah. When you're when you're busy in your own brain about what you're doing all the time, you forget that there's a lot going on around you. Yeah. Yeah. And so I try not to do that too much. I try to allow what's you know, try to try to keep my awareness open. Yeah. Well you're I, I sorry we keep going back to Amherst, but uh I so I did a little bit of research on you with our mutual friend Charisse, uh, and I, I keep forgetting to ask you this. But so your was it your great grandfather? Your great great grandfather was um, isn't he on a famous picture with George Washington? Yeah, a, yeah. Well, my family there? goes back in New England a long time, so yeah. um, you know that's 
Of course, like most of my stories, I can only tell you that it's true because I think it is. But uh, I think there's, if anybody's being honest, <laughs> everybody should say that. Yeah. You know, you, you hear these stories of when you have a long history, you know, your family has right. a long history, you, you hear all kinds of stories. Um, but the story goes that um, during the, during the um, crossing of the Delaware, they, they went up to Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is where my, grand, my ancestors come from, this little town north of Boston, which is a big sailing community. It's, it's one of the oldest uh, ports in New England and mm -hmm. the United States. And they were looking for seasoned sailors to be able to get the army across the Delaware and they grabbed a bunch of guys from Marblehead and a bunch of guys from Portsmouth I'm sure or wherever else uh, they were gathering people and um, apparently one of my ancestors was the man on the tiller of the picture of George was General Glover crossing the Delaware Delaware River oh. and um, you know that picture still hangs in a church in Marblehead Massachusetts which my aunt my grand aunt my grandmother's sister was uh the caretaker of that church for like 65 years wow. and um it's still in that church that painting i can't remember who painted it somebody famous painted it yeah you know, one of those guys from that age but uh yeah there's all kinds of weird connections to history that we all have. And un unfortunately, in our culture, I think in the United States, you know, there's always been an emphasis on people f sort of not forgetting their culture, but sort of putting it aside. Because we are a country of immigrants, mm -hmm. people want to assimilate. So they don't, you know, um, I go through this with the young uh, Mexican kids all the time because they don't speak Spanish. Yeah. And I'm like, don't do that to yourself. Dude, you got to speak Spanish. I mean, you're, you're, you know, that's your heritage. If I knew how to speak Irish, I I mean, I'd love to learn how to speak Irish or Scottish or Gaelic or yeah. any one of the languages or French even. My, you know, my mom's side of the family are are French Canadian uh, people and you know, um I think that's part of what's the problem right now is we're all we're all trying to peel away these these parts of ourselves that are yeah. important to our culture important to um but I, I i say that to mexican kids all the time i said not only are you like second generation but we're standing in mexico yeah <laughs> this is mexico right you know don't feel bad about speaking spanish right right you know i mean uh, i know spanish probably isn't their first language either because right. you know they were here before the spaniards <laughs> right yeah indios <laughs> you know yeah, it, it's a weird thing because our whatever culture we're asking people to assimilate to is sort of nebulous. It's not like a just totally defined thing, right? You know, like American. I mean, I'm from the South. You're from the East Coast. There's West yeah. Coast people. It's not like there's a way to be an American. You know, no, the the culture is just buy shit and eat yeah. <laughs> eat stuff. You know, it's well, not like I it's, think in America, a lot of people when they immigrate here, they try to they try to peel their heritage off mm. so that they can assimilate into this like soup that is america right right and then after a while they realize well i'm the carrots and he's the peas and she's the onions and yeah. that's what makes america is the soup the soup yeah and it it's truly is one of the only places in the world where where 
all the cultures of the earth have been blended together and yeah. can pretty well get along. I mean, For even though we're part. living in a time when we're the most divided we've been in a while, as far as I know, you know, we're still getting along pretty good. On balance. Um, yeah. Pretty damn good. You know? We've, we've not seen a fair bit of it recently, you know, post-election. And it's, you know, it, it's, it kind of reminds me of, like, when we lived in New Orleans, there was, um, people just call it the storm which was Katrina, you know, mm-hmm. and that was like that moment that divided all time. It was before that and after that, and that's that's how you delineated time. And it feels that way around uh, this past election, Trump. Yeah. You know? There's this moment that's like put a demarcation line in the ground, like oh, yeah. before this and after this. And we were yeah. just at Vinatuck um, in this little town, Crested Butte, and the, you know, every year they'd burn this effigy and normally it's like this amorphous grump, grumpy or the grump yeah they grump, burn the, yeah. there's a trial of the grump and they burn yeah. the grump and it's not normally like a representation of a certain person it's just right. an amorphous thing that embodies whatever's been fucking with people for, right. for the past year <laughs> let's get rid of this yeah and this year it was most definitely Donald Trump I mean, it was in the shape of Donald Trump which you know I, whatever I mean that's it's, I have my own feelings about that whole crazy yeah. thing but that idea that we're this culture and we're this thing and we're you know you got to assimilate is not real clear to me what that even is um i don't think it's clear to anybody and i think that whole that you know just like those people deciding to focus on trump is the issue and trump deciding to focus on whatever shit he's trying to focus on it's all a distraction from the fact that we need to love each other be be compassionate to each other try to be there Try not to kill each other. I mean, it's not a fucking hard thing to do. <laughs> not kill each other. You're almost. Really you're already doing it. Well, without any effort. You know, one of my many working experiences was as a police officer, yeah. and I had my opportunity more than a few times to be the arbiter of someone's end. Yeah. And it's really not hard to not kill somebody. So tell me it's about It's easy this. to kill people. It really is. It's not too. fucking hard at all to kill somebody. You can do it a thousand different ways. But it's really hard. It's it's also not hard to not kill. You know, it's, right. it's not hard to be compassionate to somebody, even mm-hmm. if they're in the darkest, most bizarre place you can't understand. You know, yeah. you still you still can spend a second and think about it. I just, I just to me, it... Uh, a lot of what's going on right now doesn't make much sense. No. <laughs> the idea that love is being ignored as a it's a good response to just about anything. Yeah. Uh, we were talking a little bit ago about the Dalai Lama. <laughs> you mentioned you'd made breakfast for the guy, uh-huh. which I thought was really cool. I saw him speak in New Orleans, and the thing that I took away from all of it was that um, it's a very, very simple concept. He's like, there's no stimulus that you can experience. And I'm paraphrasing because I'm not mm-hmm. very smart. But he's like, there's no thing that you can go through to which compassion is not the right response. So no matter mm. what you're, what's happening to you, if your response is that of compassion, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. That seemed mm-hmm. really, really simple to me. But, it is, and it's very difficult for people because they can't remove their their ego and their need and their greed and their, all the different shit that we're told we're supposed to have. We're in our own way. To be able to bring themselves to a state of compassion. Mm. And so, you know, allowing yourself 
to be compassionate and let love in is for so many generations been said to be weak and to be you know it's sure. you know all these different twisted ideal ideas of of you know what that means when you put right. yourself in that position but i agree that the you know the only true answer is for us to figure out how to be compassionate to each other yeah, and, i agree and uh you know, maybe some of this stuff will go by the wayside, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> well, I want to see about Ward, Colorado, yeah. where where you were. It sounded like almost like some sort of Truman Show sort of thing, where you were a, you were the sheriff, or you were at least a police I officer. The, I was a deputy marshal. There was four marshals uh, uh, in town. Yeah, you were also a paramedic. I was a medic for the whole district, which is about a five hundred square mile area. The Indian Peaks Fire Protection District, and then there's like several. Different yeah, I was water commissioner. I was the you know. I mean, it's a small town, <laughs> hundred people up on the stuck on the side of a mountain with hundred mile an hour wind. You yeah. know, not a lot of people want to volunteer for stuff, especially yeah. if it's involving going out in the winter. But you took um, your your cultivated curiosity and said oh shit yeah i'll do this i'll be the cop I'll do yeah this. well it was an interesting progression as much as the things that i've you know i learned pottery from jim because i needed a place that was warm to hang out between five and seven at night yeah and i went with it you know i learned how to bake because again i needed a place that i could be warm and i could eat and i could so but then i embraced it i was that was the thing and when i moved toward um I had lived over in Ophir, and uh, which is a tiny town up outside of Telluride in the middle of a big avalanche. It's like the largest avalanche zone in all of North America. Whoa. And I lived there with my friend Scotty, and my roommate from college, from, from Marlboro, owned the general store in Ward. And so I was like, well, cool, I'll go check it. Now, I had, I had lived in Boulder for many, many years and had never been to Ward. I, w- I kind of wish I had back in those days because it was a different town than when I got there. But um, so yeah, I moved up to I moved up to Ward, and I, I um, ended up being partners with Scott in a store and getting to know people. And it's a very very tight community. Um, it's not a like come anyone stay as long as you want type of scene i mean they they check you out and if you're not welcome there you're down the mountain gone um and so what happened there another one of those serendipitous things was this young boy uh i had gotten i had been involved in the fire department and i'd been doing some medical you know being on the fire department and doing some medical stuff, but I hadn't any full training or anything. The woman that ran the medical department had decided to move to Hawaii. And for some reason, she decided that she wanted to give me her house. So I got her house, and I had moved into her house, and I think I had been there for maybe two or three days. And this young kid had come over, Casey Jones, and he come over and just came in my house and introduced himself, said, hi, I'm Casey Jones. And I'm like, really? Casey Jones? you got to be kidding me. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, you know, this guy's daughter or son. And so he just introduced me. He's a wonderful, beautiful young kid. And the next morning at about 9 o'clock in the morning, the alarm went off. And um, there was an accident on the highway. And it was Casey 
and his buddy on a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And Casey had passed away immediately after the accident. Um, and his buddy was seriously hurt. And we were getting ready to put him in the helicopter. And I had my paperwork out. And I was like, okay, well, Casey Jones, you know, he's deceased. And what's the other kid's name? And one of my guys I work with said, oh, that's Jeremiah Johnson. And I was like, what? Really? You got to be kidding me. And I was really, it was really, a, it was a heavy time for me because I had just met the kid yeah. and he was a really sweet kid. He obviously came from a pretty scattered life, but, um, so that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to, I'm going to learn what it takes to try to save the next kid. Cause there was nothing I could, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, you know. I didn't have CPR. I didn't know nothing. All I knew is shove them in the ambulance, and hopefully yeah. they'll make it. You know, um, so I went to school and I became an EMT and then an EMTI, and then I just kept doing that. And that's kind of also how I fell into becoming the marshal. Was we had had a couple of marshals that had retired, and the town was home rule, and it had a very strong opinion about keeping our home rule status in the state of Colorado if you're a home rule community the county nobody but the state can dictate to you how to run your community mm-hmm. so we had our own police force we had our own fire department we had our own water department we had our yeah. own health department and we were vehement about keeping it and so when these two guys retired you know word went out like ah, who wants to be the next marshal you know and Basically, me and my buddy Pete were the only two guys that didn't have felony records, so we uh, we volunteered, and we were both older, you know. We were both, we weren't, you know, 20-year-old kids yeah. wanting to be police officers, you know. We were, yeah. uh, I think I was 30, some 34 or something when I went to academy, and then Pete was probably 40. Yeah. So we were the oddballs in the, in yeah. the police academy because we yeah. went to a police academy down in Denver, and, and wow. it was a serious, you know, like dudes and, you know, yeah. protocols and all this stuff. And we're like, hey, yeah, wow, cool, man, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll apply that. We'll more. show up. No we'll bring problem. a gun. I mean, you know, if we have to arrest them, we will, but. Uh, we can talk our way through this. Yeah, <laughs> and I did. I, 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 uh, I saved my ass more than once talking my way through because we did have a lot of. The town has a reputation of being outlaws, and mm. a lot of violent people would come from down below and try to hide. You know, mm. they'd think, "Oh, well, I got to go hide. I'll go to ward," and you know, and they'd walk right into my store. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the guy they were just talking to me about on the radio. <laughs> you know, so, wow. yeah, you know, we dealt with a lot. I definitely dealt with a lot of uh, a lot of sketchy situations. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me, and like, I mean, the driving conditions throughout the state are just crazy. Yeah. Winding crazy roads. It just seems like at all times you're set up for danger. Yeah. Uh, and I would imagine you've seen some pretty heavy... Heavy stuff. I mean, starting with Casey Jones and yeah, Johnson. Yeah, oh, I, for sure, for sure. Were you present for a lot of death? Yeah. Um, I've definitely been um, working through some of that stuff. Um, but, yeah, um, I've seen a lot of a lot of people die. Mm. And I've helped a lot of people live. So, you know, on, yeah. on, on all, I'd say yeah. pretty pretty good um but yeah you know when i did it for a long time so um and we did have a very we had the indian peaks wilderness so people would come from like 
the classic, and this happened many, many times, was people would come from Oklahoma or Florida or Tennessee, and they'd be like, oh, I'm going to climb that mountain. And they'd not acclimate themselves Mm -hmm. for more than like half an hour, and they'd scramble up a 12,000-foot mountain, and then they'd get high-altitude pulmonary edema, or they'd fall and break a leg, or they'd pop their head or do something, you know? Because they just don't understand that, right? You know, how different that is in your body. Not only that, but in the wilderness, things change really quickly. Yeah. I mean, you can go up there and it's blue sky, and two and a half hours later, it's a snow Storm. squall, and you're yeah. you can't find your. I couldn't. I know that area really well, and I I wouldn't go up there in those conditions. Yeah. <laughs> I did many times. I often talk about how I've been to the top of all the Indian peaks, which are 14ers, 13ers, multiple times, not once, for just fun. for a hike. Yeah. I'd always, always, be, always be a rescue, and I'd be up there, you know, carry all the gear. So, yeah. 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 And I've been dealing with it lately. I've been, a lot of, lot of stuff's been, you know, um, it's been a long time, so it's sort of finding its way out, mm. different experiences that I've, that I've kind of shelved. Where's Ida when we need her? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I, I didn't mention or Charisse. Charisse, yeah. <laughs> Ida Rolf. I, so if you didn't already, hit pause now and go look up Ida Rolf. Incredible uh, pioneer of a very unique massage therapy. I don't even know if it's totally accurate to call it massage. It's, it's just Rolfing. It's its own thing. Yeah, but. it's more like a neurological release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, type of thing but uh, uh, done through physical yeah manipulation manipulation <laughs> yeah. and it's it can be painful for sure i've never experienced it uh and i went to massage school and i've, I've certainly very um aware of it but i've never actually experienced the uh, the technique i really should yeah the, the second person the only other person that's ralph me was this ex-marine living on the taos uh tiwa reservation down in taos pueblo yeah and my buddies, of course, I have some friends that are that are native, and and I went down there to visit one time, and they hauled me all around to every every man on the reservation. It felt like to wrestle. Yeah. You know, you got to wrestle this guy, you got to wrestle this guy. You know, you wrestle ninety year old guys, sixteen year old guys. You know, and eventually somebody. I had a bad shoulder and somebody blew my shoulder up. So they're like, oh, we'll bring you over to Jimmy, you know, the Marine down, the the, the one white guy that lives on the reservation <laughs> is this giant Marine dude. And he's a rolfer. And he rolfed the hell. I was hurting for days. Sort out your shoulder? No, no. Didn't do shit for my shoulder, but it definitely aligned my spiritual inner, you know. Why were you wrestling everybody on the... That's just one of the ways they welcome you into the family. Oh, shit. Yeah. There was that a lot great. of... That's a really long story that would could be a whole other podcast. But, yeah. Um, I, I was friends with the medicine chief's son, who was on sort of on a vision quest he was also the ambassador to the un but he ended up in amherst Mm. and ended up hanging out with me and the people we hung out with and one time me and him and this um hawaiian dude john cruz who's a musician in hawaii were together and the last totem he needed was the tail of a red-tailed hawk and the hawk died in flight 
What? And landed while we were walking down a highway. Jesus. And Henry took the bird and made his dress and all the stuff he needed to do with that totem. And then he gave me a talon with his beadwork and Johnny Cruz a talon with his beadwork. And for some reason, I thought I should bring it. I was going to New Mexico to see a girlfriend. And I was like, well, I'll bring it to the reservation and give it to his dad. Well, I didn't realize that that was... Not cool. Well, no, it was cool, but it was it was weird because they hadn't seen him in years. He oh. was on this quest, you know. And so all of a sudden I show up at the back gate, and I was in full fatigues at the time, army gear. And I show up with the talent, and immediately they saw the beadwork, and they were like, this is Rain is Cummings beadwork. Henry was his white man name. Yeah. I said, where'd you get this? I said, well, Henry gave it to me. And they're like, oh, no, Henry. You know, so then I had to go through this whole ritual of like meeting everybody and wrestling everybody and <laughs> driving them all, you know, going around getting drunk with every guy in the yeah. whole freaking reservation. Wow. You know, but anyway, after that, it was really cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but now they call me Paycheck down there. Paycheck? Yeah, Johnny Paycheck. That's great. Me. Yeah, that's, that's pretty hot. That's my Indian nickname. Johnny Paycheck. Paycheck. I love yeah. that. <laughs> love that. Wait, what, so wait, were you in the service? Did no. you end, Okay, you just were wearing fatigues. I just always had, ever since I was a kid, I wore fatigues just because, yeah? yeah, they were cheap and easy to get. True. Yeah. yeah. It's a little known fact about the uh, Army surplus Well, store. when you live in a community full of, you know, Air Force and yeah. Army people, it's pretty easy to pick that stuff up. Yeah. Plus they're comfy. Yeah. Lots of pockets. Yeah, <laughs> they're made like sheets. They yeah. feel like bed sheets. Yeah, that's great. Holy shit! How did we end up? Wearing, I don't know. It just goes around and around. Wow. All right. So I want to. I, I want to try somehow to get us from Ward. But we were talking a little bit about about death, and you were saying, yeah, you know. So my sweet wife has worked in, as a nurse for many years. Tiffany, I can't call you her, Tiffany, um, and has seen a lot of death. Uh-huh. My mother's a nurse and has worked primarily with the sick and dying her entire life, hospice, right. palliative care, oncology. And uh, everybody's take on it and their dealing with it is different. I- I've never been around someone, except for my father, but I- I've never really been around many dying people and people in that, that moment of death. I-, I have no idea how you're meant to deal with it or what comes up later. Uh, I just can't even really grasp that. that yeah, that it's hard. I think I think a big key to being able to do it, sustain a, to sustain being able to be around death, is letting go of your own need. You know, your own sense of like why I'm alive and what should I be. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. kind of letting that, just experiencing it for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. The first major death that I experienced was my grandfather. And he was um, getting old, and we knew he was going to die. Me and my mother went to the nursing home uh, one night, and he was in such bad shape that that I remember saying to my mother, like, maybe we should just pray that that God takes him. Because he was in such pain, it was just mm. rough to watch, you know. 
and sure enough he did he died you know and so it was like a release in a sense for me that you know um it, it life is such a beautiful experience and death is really a beautiful experience in a lot of ways i mean it depends on the type of death but you know the whole experience is all part of one experience it's mm -hmm. it's not like you can live without dying and die without living i mean you have to go through all of it and mm -hmm. god you know nobody i mean some people think they know what's next or what should be or could be or whatever we'll see you know yeah. but um there's definitely a there's definitely a closing of the loop that happens for me in a spiritual way and just sort of a mental way like knowing that okay this person had this amazing life all these did like my grandfather did amazing things in his life and then had gotten to a point where his body just couldn't sustain itself and he was hurting and it was like okay yeah. papa freaking go for it man you know we're ready f you know and i was of course i was the youngest grandchild so i was like you know i was like oh you know you're free get yeah go get it man get yeah. it over with do it do something different go on and so that was my first experience with somebody close you know with a with a close experience to death but having grown up in an irish family you know death was a celebrate it was it was there was remorse and stuff like that but it's sure. also a part of it's also celebration of you know what they went through their experience yeah and also like hey you know they died but we're still alive yeah. here we are here we sit yeah, yeah. here's to jimmy yeah. you know whoopee so but but in trauma and i don't know what kind of stuff you did as a nurse tiff but it, that in trauma it's a lot different and that death can be really close and they can go away for a minute and it can come back and it can be and it's and it's this whole like balance of mm. you know what's going on what happened um and then ultimately you know it doesn't matter how good you are it doesn't it's when your time is there it's there dude it doesn't yeah. matter it can be i mean i've seen people that shouldn't have died and i've seen people that should have been dead that yeah. lived and you know it's just a mind fuck in a lot of ways because yeah. You know, one of the most amazing situations I ever saw was was in a snowstorm, major snowstorm. Couldn't see the windshield wipers on your car. These people, young couple, launched a 350 foot cliff in a Subaru and an Outback. You know, God loves Subarus. <laughs> Rolled all the way down in a blizzard. Shit! Just happened to land next to four guys hunting that had buckled down and set camp and the car landed like 30 yards away from them in the middle of nowhere we're talking in the middle and you know 20 something 30 miles away from anything and then the hunter they get the people out and the baby there was a little newborn baby in the Holy car shit. and the newborn baby had one little teeny red spot on its forehead Everybody was fine, but the most amazing thing was we had just come off another call. So we were 10 miles away on another call, and we had the state trooper had just released from that first call. And the hunter climbed up this cliff right when the state trooper was passing. 
And the state trooper happened to see him because you couldn't even see. I mean, I don't know even how he saw the guy standing on the side of the road. It was so, the blizzard was so bad. And then the trooper called us and we got there. I mean, it was like one of those miracle, like everything came together perfectly. It's just not your time. And I went down there and I looked at the car and I was like, somebody has to be dead. There is no way that these, no way these people could be okay. And everybody was fine. And the little baby had a little teeny, little teeny bump. And that was it. And then I've had other times when I was like, how the heck did this person, you know. Not survive this, yeah. Yeah. It's just. I, I, with my father, when, when he passed, so he was in the ICU for many days. Um, and it was, weird, you know, it's sort of a fucked up surgical situation. Things went wrong. But uh, there was a moment the day that he actually died where my sister and I were we were taking these little visit visits, you know, in in the ICU. You could sleep out there in the waiting room, and then right. when it was visiting hours, you could go in real quick. And, uh, she and I took a turn to go in, and uh, she just walked up to him and opened his eyes. You know, like his eyes were shut, she just opened an eye. And, you know, neither of us really had very much experience with it. And she was like, he's gone. He's not here. And it was so bizarre to look into right. that eye and not see a person in there. It was fucking strange. Yeah. And, you know, he was, his vital signs were, everything was poor, things were not going well, but he was alive, technically. You know, yeah, the heart yeah, was still yeah. beating, things yeah. were still, you know. But she looked in there and was like, there's not a person in here. He's gone. Like, our father's dead. Yeah. And then, you know, within a few hours, like, yeah, your dad's dead. Yeah. It was so bizarre to see, you know, it, it's one of the things that through, you know, uh, LSD and various mystical experiences, I question what our consciousness is and, and think about where's that line? How Well, it's the dream state, too, you know? I mean, like, there's been plenty of times just recently I've been having really weird dream cycles, mm. and I can, th- I can see myself like, okay, I got to get out of this dream right now. I got to wake up now. And so I think a lot of times for people when they're in, especially prolonged death, they're right on the edge of like bringing their consciousness to that next place. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they do and their body survives that and stays yeah. alive for a while, you know. And some people, they, you know, when they die quickly, mm-hmm. they're just, they're transported there on, the, you know, Wherever. without the power of being able to do that. Like, I'm not real familiar with it, but lucid dreaming seems to me to be sort of a similar thing where you can bring yourself into the dream state and you can stay there as long as you want and make it as whatever you want. You can bring yourself out of it. Yeah. You know, and I've definitely experienced what you're talking about with um, with people on the edge of death. Um, when the lights are out, but there's, yeah, there's no one yeah. home, but the lights are on. <laughs> However you want to put I, I had a really incredible experience with a gentleman in Boulder, um, who suffered a compression injury and mm. he was gonna die and there was no way we could we could save him. We brought a surgical team in, the whole thing, and there was there was absolutely no way he was gonna survive once we removed the issue. And I was in in medical world when you show up on a scene and you get to a victim and you take the head you're in charge of the head from that point on. You're, and that's not just the neck and the head and the bone and all. It's the person. Yeah. And so, being a rookie, 
I didn't know any better. I ran right out to this guy, and I was like, hey, how you doing? I'm Johnny. How's it going? You know, and so I became the person that talked to him. Well, within a little while, I realized, oh, shit, I'm going to have to be the guy that tells him he's done. And so getting being in that place where, you know, having to help someone go from being a healthy 30-year-old male, you know, with a life and all the stuff to realizing that, you know, in half an hour, we're going to take this thing off you and you're going to live for about four pumps of your heart and then you're going to die because there's nothing we can do. There's absolutely no way we can save you, you know, being, and I've been in that situation a few times with a few different people. And it's like, it's, it's a difficult thing because they didn't, you know, it's not like they're sick and they know they're dying and they're going to, you know, it's just like all of a sudden here you are, you're at the, you're at the edge of the cliff and, you know, can't can't keep you from falling off it but i can tell you about the ride down and i can you know try to hook you up with you know try to contact the people you want me to contact and whatever but so that's that was a difficult you know experience sure and different you know because just like being alive i mean people die every which there's a thousand ways to die which is a hilarious movie if you haven't seen it a thousand ways to die yeah I've never it's going on the list next to the books. Wow. Johnny, I, I, I'm sorry to suddenly, we went from Amherst to Denver to death. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's a, that, that could be a book someday. Yeah. Well, again, like I said, you know, I mean, I feel blessed to be able to have had those experiences in life. Sometimes they're, you know, I'm not going to bullshit you. I occasionally have trouble, you know, I wake up thinking about stuff or people or scenes or whatever. It's not easy, but it's a hell of a lot better than some of the things other people have to wake up thinking about and right. and the types of experience of death that they've had. And, yeah. You know, so I, I feel blessed to have been able to have all this, you know, wide array, array of yeah. different experiences in life. Cause well, you've said that to me a couple of times since we've met that you're, um, Whatever shit you're seeing, you're you have the wherewithal and the sensitivity to kind of compare it to the experience of someone else. And you're like, well, it's not that bad. You know, you've said it a couple yeah. times in this conversation with the yeah. plight of America. It's like, well, it's not that bad. You know, we may not be getting along that great, but boy, it sure is all right. You know, the experience could. Well, be Well, I think that's bore out of hope that it can be better. Yeah, you know, um, I'm not. I I can be stubborn and stuff like that, but I'm not entrenched. Mm. Big you know? difference. Yeah, and I just I just think that um, this is a beautiful place, and it can be the nirvana that every spiritual leader has ever talked about since time began. You know, but we need to let it be that. You know, mm. we need to stop with the stuff that's causing us this pain and grief. I mean, mm. it's it's simple stuff. You know. Yeah. And every every spiritual guru talked about the same, same it's thing. Basically, five different things we shouldn't be doing. You know, <laughs> right. it's like, you know, but there is like everything in the universe. There's there's a good, there's a bad, there's a up, there's a down, there's a light, and there's a dark, and you know, it's trying to figure out that balance. And I think right now, like a top spinning, we're in that wobbly stage. You know. It always spins really nice, and then it wobbles a little bit, and then it starts spinning again, nice and cleanly, 
you know, and I think we're just in a really wobbly space right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who knows? Here's to the top continuing to spin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, listen, thank you so much. Sure. For having us in your bus and sure, at your house. We'll shut these mics off and we'll hang out. Good. Right. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Saying thank you for listening to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you haven't already, or it's been a while, check out our website, mtp.dog. There's plenty of information there. An about tab with a little bio on Andrew, myself, and our dog Pele. There's also a van build tab detailing how we did our van conversion. A journal tab and we, as an Andrew, are doing our best to keep that up to date. And last but not least, a contact tab where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all.
Well, 